Turn with me in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 30. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 14. Father, as we've uh, seen in the rest of this series, there are wonderful things in your law. And Lord, it's our desire that you would open our eyes this morning, that we would behold wonderful things from your law, that we would come to know and love and hope in you more today than we have in the past. And you give us so many reasons for that. So please do that work in us this morning. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. To start things off, I just would like to consider the kindness of God to us. Some of the simple, common, but precious kindnesses of God to us. Just the fact that you're here this morning even is evidence of God's kindness in your life. You're alive. I'm alive, and we're only alive because God has sustained us. Beyond that, you're healthy. You're not in the hospital. You're not at home sick. And that's only because the Lord has sustained you. You live in a country in the United States where we have the privilege to come and where we have the privilege to worship freely in public. And you've made it here, so your your car started, or you got a ride, or you had money to put gas in the tank. And these are all just simple, common kindnesses of the Lord that we so often take for granted. And that's a sin when we take those things for granted. But now let's consider some even more profound kindnesses of God for us. He's given us relationships. Has he given you relationships, whether that be parents or friends or a spouse or a sibling? Has he given you a mind to know him? He certainly has. Has he given you his word to know him? Has he given you time and resources to serve him? Has he given you salvation? Has he forgiven your sins? Has he adopted you into his family? Sometimes we can even take these precious promises, these precious kindnesses of of God, and we can take them for granted. We fail to thank God for them. But sometimes we do even worse than just neglect praising God for them. We misuse or we abuse the kindnesses that God has given to us. Instead of thanking God for our freedom, maybe we grumble about our government. Instead of thanking God for our healthy bodies, maybe we bemoan our appearance. Instead of cherishing our wives, maybe we neglect them. Instead of reading And studying his word, we choose Facebook or the news. Instead of using the intellect that he's given us to grow in our knowledge of him, we fill our minds with frivolous distractions, or even worse, with sin, with sinful thoughts. Instead of trusting him, we forget him, and we trust in ourselves instead. Instead of loving him with all of our hearts and all of our soul and all of our might, We turn away, and we love other things, and we chase after other lesser, fleeting pleasures. When we examine ourselves carefully and honestly, we discover the incessant waywardness of our hearts, that our faith is so small, and that our obedience is so lacking. And you and I are not unlike Israel. Israel had certainly seen the kindness and the power of Yahweh, the Lord. They were the recipients of his grace, and they too were faithless and they were disobedient. This is the picture that the book of Deuteronomy gives us. In our text, it doesn't come until the end of the book, but it will be helpful to orient ourselves in the book so that we can really make the most of this text. So Deuteronomy is largely composed of three speeches of Moses. These speeches were given in the final weeks of his life. They were given and and recorded on the plains of Moab, just east of the Jordan River across from Jericho. And Moses' audience, it was the second generation of Israel. The oldest of them would have been 40 to 60 years old. And these would have been born in Egypt, and they would have participated in the Exodus as children and and as teenagers. So they would have witnessed the plagues. They would have seen the first Passover. They would have 
seen the parting of the Red Sea with their very own eyes, and they would have walked through with their own two feet on dry land. And all of those standing before Moses, listening to him speak, they would have seen the pillar of the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. They would have eaten manna. They would have drunk water from the rock. They would have seen the Lord defeat kings on their behalf. Day after day, they received blessing and provision from the Lord, kindness after kindness. And as Moses spoke to this generation, the generation that was on the brink of finally entering the promised land, he spoke to remind them of all these things. And he spoke to remind them of the covenant that God had made with them at Mount Sinai, the Sinaitic covenant or the Mosaic covenant. And Moses spoke to motivate them and to exhort them as they prepared to go in. But he didn't, he didn't speak to motivate them to bravery, to rally them to bravery or to valiant fighting. Instead, he spoke to rally them to obedience. Because though, though Israel would enter the promised land and dispossess the Canaanites, primarily because of their own wickedness, of the Canaanites' wickedness, and because of the promise that God had previously made to Abraham, Israel's continued possession of the land would depend upon the ongoing obedience of Israel. If they would obey, then they would stay in the land. But if they disobey the commands of Yahweh, then they themselves would be driven out of the promised land. And so given the high stakes of obedience here for Israel, it's not surprising that most of Deuteronomy, even chapters 4 all the way through 28, are devoted to restating the law and to exhorting Israel to obedience. So Moses restates and he explains the Ten Commandments and he expounds upon them with commandments that touch on every area of life, from economics to family to food to property to warfare to sexuality to justice to guidance to worship, all of these things. And all of them fall under the heading of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, which Jesus himself has identified as the greatest commandment. For he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. This was the standard that Israel was held to. This is the standard that God would hold them to. But sadly, though Yahweh had revealed himself to Israel through many different signs and wonders, and though he had shown them kindness after kindness, and though the Lord had communicated his will to them very clearly, still Israel would continue to be faithless and to be disobedient. And so along with the exhortation to obedience, Deuteronomy includes an expectation of disobedience. Because Yahweh knows the heart of Israel. And so in chapter 31, verse 20, he says this, When I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to give to their fathers, and they have eaten and are full and have grown fat, they will turn to other gods and serve them, and despise me and break my covenant. And even Moses sees this coming. And we see that in chapter 31, verse 27, where Moses says, I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Behold, even today, while I am yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? And then in chapter 29, just leading up to our passage, we see a warning about how this future downfall could and would, in fact, occur. We see that in chapter 29, verse 18, where it says, Beware lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. The verses that follow would tell of the bitterness of that fruit, of curses and calamity, of disease, of devastation upon the land that would be described and compared with even Sodom and Gomorrah. And all this would lead up to the uprooting of Israel from the land, to their banishment and to their exile. 
Israel would be a wayward nation, and they would be a wayward nation made up of wayward individuals. And those individuals would be wayward because they had a wayward heart. And so in Deuteronomy, there is much, much exhortation to obedience. And there is the expectation of disobedience. But there is also a great promise. There is also great hope in Deuteronomy. And our passage this morning is absolutely full of hope. It was full of hope for Israel with their wayward hearts. And it's full of hope for you and me with our hearts that are also wayward and that are also so prone to wander. So this morning, no matter how far it is that you've fallen into sin, no matter how often you've fallen, no matter how entangled you are, no matter how overwhelming the consequences of your sin may be, no matter how heavy, how painful the discipline of God may be in your life, no matter how hopeless you may feel today or any day in the future, there is hope. And there is hope here in this passage. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 through 14, we will find three sources of hope. Three sources of hope for the wayward child of God that will, you, that will encourage you to return to him with all your heart. And we're going to see that all of those sources are in the Lord. The first source of hope that we'll take a look at this morning is in verses 1 through 5. And that is that the Lord is faithful to the faithless. Reagan has already read our passage, so you can just look along with me as, as, we, as we work through it. But we've already seen Israel's faithlessness, described by Yahweh and by Moses. We've seen the severe consequences, the serious consequences of their faithlessness. And this is the immediate context. And now, here in, in verse 1 of chapter 30, we see the first manifestation of Yahweh's covenant faithfulness. Look with me at verse 1a. It says, when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you. So notice that these verses are written from the perspective of the future. They're in the future and they're now looking back. These things had not yet happened. And what are these things? Well, that's referring to the preceding chapters and specifically to chapter 28, to the blessings and the curses that Moses explicitly lays out to the blessings that will follow obedience and the curse that will follow disobedience. Obedience would bring Israel favor from God and just bountiful blessing upon them in every area of their lives. But on the other hand, disobedience would bring unrelenting disease and violence and death and exile and shame. And we have the benefit of being able to, to look back and to see that all these things have in fact taken place in history. There was blessing. Israel was about to enter the promised land. They did enter the promised land. And they did enjoy the blessing of Yahweh for a time. But then they disobeyed and there was cursing. We hear about this from the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah who lived in and prophesied against the rebellion and the faithlessness of Israel. They warned of coming destruction and exile. And even in the book of Lamentations by Jeremiah that was written shortly after the downfall of Jerusalem, we see how horrific it was for Israel to be under the curse of Yahweh, the disease and the starvation and the captivity under a cruel nation. But this, even this, is a manifestation of Yahweh's covenant faithfulness. His faithfulness to keep his word, to curse the disobedient. But this faithfulness of the Lord, it would not be the end of his people. There was a greater purpose, and the faithfulness of Yahweh to curse the disobedient of, to curse Israel, it would have its desired effect. And that effect would be that it would bring them to their senses. And we see this in the second part of verse 1 where it says, when all these things come upon you and you call them to mind among the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. So as Israel experienced the judgment of God, the exile in foreign lands, they would remember. They would come to their senses. They would literally bring back to their hearts 
the things that Moses had told them, the blessing and the curse. And they would recognize the fact that their present sufferings were a result of their own waywardness, of their own covenant faithlessness with Yahweh. They would understand that their exile and suffering was actually the Lord holding up his end of the deal, holding up his end of the covenant. And having had their mind set right, then Israel's orientation toward Yahweh would change. Instead of running away from him, they would turn to him and turn back to him. And in verse 2, we see what this turning entails. We see that it, it involves obeying his voice and all his commands with all their heart and with all their soul. This is total, unreserved, wholehearted obedience. The word here for return is the word for repent. And what we see from Israel here is true repentance. Repentance is an act of one's entire being. It's an act of the mind in that we recognize with our minds the vileness of sin, the offense that it is against the holy God who has been so gracious and so kind to us over and over and over again. It is a turning of the affections to hate sin and to turn into love the Lord instead. And it is a turning of the will to be that we would be determined to chase after obedience, to eradicate sin and to leave no trace of it at all behind. Repentance has been helpfully described as a change of mind that is so complete that it leads to a change of life. From disobedience to obedience, from Rebellion to submission. One example of this is the prodigal son. Right? He, having rebelled against his father and having suffered the consequences of his rebellion, how he grew sick of his pig food and he grew sick of himself. And he owned his guilt and he returned home to his father with humility. And our passage is telling us that so will Israel one day return to the Lord. And so must we, so must you, and so must I. So as you think back, maybe even just about this past week, and ask yourself, have I been wallowing in sin this week? Have I been wallowing in pride and comparing myself to somebody else? Have I been wallowing in lust and not guarding my thoughts? Have I been wallowing in laziness and not being a good steward of the time that God has given me? Are you suffering the consequences of your sin because of that this morning? Are you under the discipline of God right now, today? Well, if you recognize that, then recognize also that the Lord disciplines the one that he loves. And let that kindness of God, even to show you that sin, leads you to repentance. Come to your senses and return to him. And when you do, look what happens. Look what happens when Israel repents in verse 3 through 5. In verse 3, we see that the Lord will restore Israel's fortunes when they repent. He will restore them from their captivity. Literally, it says he will turn their captivity. And so the idea is that their captivity will be turned on its head, that all the painful consequences will be reversed, and they'll be reversed perfectly. The ones whom Yahweh will scatter in exile, he will also gather back to himself. And verse 4 emphasizes the extent and the fullness of Yahweh's act of gathering, that even the one who's been banished the furthest, even that one he will bring back to himself, and he will reclaim as his own. In verse 5, it shows how he gathers him and that when he gathers him, that he will bring them back to the promised land, to the land that their fathers possessed, and that he will make them even more numerous and even more prosperous than them. And notice the certainty of Yahweh's response. It says over and over again, he will restore them. He will gather them. He will bring them into the land. He will make them more prosperous and numerous than their forefathers. Spurgeon said this, Oh, how I love God's shalls and wills. 
There is nothing comparable to them. Let a man say shall, what is it good for? I will, says man, and he never performs. I shall, he says, and he breaks his promise. But it is never so with God's shalls. If he says shall, it shall be. And when he says will, it will be. There is absolute certainty that God will restore his people. But when will this happen? Well, historically, the first installment of Yahweh's faithfulness, his restorative faithfulness in this way, would occur with Israel's return from exile in Babylon to the land. But what is pictured here in these verses is even much greater than that. It's the complete fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, the promise that he made way back in Genesis. Genesis 13, verses 14 through 16 say this, The Lord said to Abraham, Lift your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Yahweh will bring this promise to pass in its fullness in the future, with the return of Christ in the millennial kingdom. What hope, though, this promise would have given to Israel when they were in exile? that they could have looked forward with the hope of God's faithfulness like this, that as surely as God had been faithful to curse them for their disobedience, to the same extent, so surely would he be to restore them in his faithfulness. And our hope is Israel's hope. We must acknowledge the Lord's perfect track record of faithfulness to his promises. As we look back and as we see the faithfulness of God to Israel in the past, we're assured that he will be faithful in the future. And so we can take hold of him, we can depend upon him, and we can trust in his word, we can trust in his promises. And we must praise him for his faithfulness. Listen to these words from Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven. You've probably sung these many times. Praise him for his grace and favor to our fathers in distress. Praise him, still the same as ever, slow to chide and swift to bless. Praise him, praise him, glorious in his faithfulness. So the first source of hope for us this morning is the faithfulness of the Lord, the fact that the Lord is faithful to the faithless. And the second point that we have is that the Lord is gracious to the helpless. And we'll see this in verses 6 through 10. So when Israel returns to the Lord, they will find him unchanged in his faithfulness. They will find him ready to bless. But there is a condition that must be met before Yahweh will restore his people. Yahweh's, his faithfulness demands a curse on the disobedient. And so Israel must repent. They must turn. They must turn and they must love and they must obey him with all their heart in order for Yahweh to faithfully bring them into the promised land. And earlier in Deuteronomy, Israel was commanded to address their hearts. In chapter 10, verse 16, where it's, it says, they're commanded, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. And last week, Sheldon broke this down for us. He showed us what this looks like, that it means to cut away the sin from their hearts and to meet the requirements of Yahweh, that we would fear him, that we would serve him, that we would obey him, that they would do so with all their hearts and with all their souls, with their whole entire being. This is what Israel was called to do. But the question is, could they do this? Is this something that they could do? Look with me at at chapter 29, verse 4. This is at the beginning of the third speech of Moses in Deuteronomy, the the one that we're in. Chapter 29, verse 4, it says, But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see 
or ears to hear. So though Israel had seen the Lord's power and faithfulness with their own eyes repeatedly over and over again, they could not take it to heart. They were guilty of that. And they were hopeless and they were helpless to change themselves. They were totally unable to meet the righteous requirement of God's law because of their hearts. The problem was their wayward hearts. And this brings us to verse 6. And this is what has sometimes been called the center of the gospel according to Moses. Look with me at verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart, the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. Israel could not cut away the sin from their hearts, but the Lord could and the Lord would. And what a shift takes place in this single verse. Look at the change that has happened here. The command of chapter 10, verse 16, has been turned into a promise. You circumcise your hearts versus the Lord will circumcise your hearts. And the command of, of chapter 6, verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And has become a promise. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. The greatest commandment has become a great, a great promise. And this verse, this reality, looks forward to the new covenant that was foretold by Jeremiah. Listen to Jeremiah chapter 24, verses 5 through 7. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, like these good figs, so I will regard as good the exiles from Judah, whom I have sent away from this place to the land of the Chaldeans. I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not pluck them up. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. So Yahweh, the Lord, will certainly give Israel a new heart. And the result of that will be that they will certainly repent and love him wholeheartedly so that he can faithfully restore them to the promised land. The Lord would not lower his standards, nothing less than perfection. He wouldn't settle for any kind of outward conformity to the law or a merely external obedience. Instead, he will give a new heart that will love and that will obey. He will grant repentance to Israel. He will grant to them what he requires of them. And he will make sure that they meet the requirement of his law. And in this way, God can honor the unconditional promise that he made to Abraham that he would bring his offspring into the land without violating the conditional promise that he made to Israel that he would curse disobedience but that he would bless obedience. He won't compromise his faithfulness. So what faithfulness this is. What grace this is for us. What wisdom can devise such a, a plan as this. And what would the result of this be? Well, we see at the end of verse 6 that you may live so that they would live and that they would dwell in the promised land. The new covenant is a national promise to Israel. The new thing here is not merely that the Lord would circumcise the heart, that he would give people a heart to know and to love and obey him. He did that with some of the, the Old Testament saints, like Abraham and Moses and, and David. The new thing here is the scope. It's that all Israel will be this way. And so Jeremiah 31, another key new covenant passage. In verse 34, he says, No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. And why, why not? For they shall all know me. For from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. 
They will all know him. So every individual of Israel will know God, and there will be no poisonous root like we saw that would lead other individuals astray or that would lead the nation astray. And so this was the future hope of Israel. This is the hope of Israel. God's future regeneration of each Israelite and of the entire nation that will lead to the ultimate restoration and the permanent indwelling of the promised land and the incredible blessing that comes with that. Again, this blessing for Israel has not come, but it will certainly come. And we get a description of this blessing in verses 7 through 10, and they're very similar to verses 2 through 5. In verse 7, it says, And the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecuted you. So the nations that captured and that mistreated and that abused Israel, they were culpable. They were responsible for the way that they treated God's people, and they would bear the consequences. In verses 8 and 9, it says, And you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all his commandments that I command you today. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your cattle, and in the fruit of your ground. For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you as he took delight in your fathers. These verses expand upon verse 5, and they just show the completeness of the reversal of the curse, the extent to which it was absolutely turned upside down. Israel's children, they would not die. They would live. They would survive. They would thrive. Israel's livestock would not starve. They would not be eaten by another nation, but they would increase. And the ground of Israel it would not be barren, but it would produce a great crop. And the Lord would, it says, he would delight or rejoice in prospering Israel. And this is an amazing turn. In verse 2863, this is part of the curse that would come upon unfaithfulness to the covenant. Chapter 28, verse 63, it says, And as the Lord took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, so the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. Wow. We see that the Lord delights in his own faithfulness. Whether or not that means, whether that means blessing or cursing, he is pleased to display his faithfulness. But here we see that upon Israel's repentance that he will turn again and he will be faithful to bless Israel, just as he had prospered Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that the Lord remains unchanging in his faithfulness. And then in verse 10, when you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commands and his statutes that are written in this book of the law, when you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So the generation that Moses was addressing on the plains of Moab, they, they would be entering the promised land. And they would, in fact, render some kind of obedience and covenant faithfulness. We see that in chapter 7. But there is also an, an overall and an undeniable certainty that Israel will one day occupy the promised land for good. Even though that is the case, though, it's still the responsibility of this generation upon the present generation there on the plains of Moab listening to Israel to obey. Well, the hope of a, of a new heart is the hope of Israel. But as the church, that is not our, our hope. That is our present reality. The fact that each member of the church, each true member of the church is regenerated. We have a new heart. So the new, the new covenant was found its initial and, and partial fulfillment in the church. And this, we see this in, uh, from Jesus himself at the Last Supper in Luke 22, verse 20, where he says, he was referring to his death, and he says, this cup 
that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So this new covenant reality of a new heart is true for all of those who are in Christ. Colossians 2.11 goes on and explains a little bit more about how this, this new covenant is true in those who have received Christ and those who have been baptized into Christ. It says, In him also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And Romans 6.6 6 explains the effect of this putting off of the body of the flesh. It says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So the heart that could once, that was once unable to understand that was enslaved to sin has been circumcised. It has been made alive and it has been made free to love and to obey the Lord. And what a wonderful reality this is for you and me. We need to grasp and take a hold of and own this reality that in Christ, that we are no longer slaves to sin. That though we will battle against sin, that there is indwelling sin, that that sin will remain until the day we die, that we are not slaves to it. We do not have to sin. You do not have to sin. You can choose to obey. And what a gracious truth that is. And as we struggle with that, we can look forward to the day when it, we won't, it won't even be possible for us to sin, which is an unimaginable joy. So there's great great hope in that. And so, so far we've seen that there is our first source of hope from this passage is that the Lord is faithful to the faithless. And the second source of hope that we've seen is that the Lord is gracious to the helpless, that he gives us a new heart that we can love and obey him. And now we see the third point, the third source of hope. And that is this, that the Lord enlightens the ignorant and we see this in verses 11 through 14. And let me read this again for us, verses 11 through 14. For this command that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. This law, these commands that the Lord had given Israel were a great blessing. God had condescended to this particular people at this particular time, and he had made himself known to them. In his commands, he'd, he'd spelled out the clear path to a wonderful relationship with him and the clear path to certain blessing. And this set Israel apart from, from all the other nations that were surrounding them. By contrast, their gods, they, they conceived of them as distant, as unresponsive. They were left guessing as to how they could appease him or how they could manipulate him to get blessing from him. But this was not the case with Israel. The Lord had drawn near to Israel and he'd drawn near to them in this special way and he'd revealed himself to them in the law, in his commands and statutes. And so in these four verses, we see a couple of major ideas about the law. The first one we see in verse 11 and 12, and it's that it says that the law is not too hard for you to do it. The law is not too hard for you to do it. I first read that and I was like, oh man, really? Is that what these verses are saying? Are these verses saying that the law is within reach of Israel to do? Calvin's response to that question is what? But then he goes on and he says, what does he, does he state that, 
that keeping them, the commands, is within the compass of our strength? He says, by no means. But is Calvin right? Do we agree with Calvin? James 2.10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. And then 1 John 1.8, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. So it's not just Calvin who says that that's not the case. Certainly, nobody can keep the law. But even beyond that, although it appears that that the text at first reading is saying that Israel can do or that they can perform the law, that's not actually the force of what these verses say. And, And how do we know that? Well, the word here for too hard, it could literally be translated too wonderful. And this carries the idea of too hard to understand, too hard to comprehend. And we see there's a number of instances in the Bible, but one here in Deuteronomy is in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 17, where Moses is setting up leaders that are going to help him to judge among the tribes of Israel, help him to to sort out all these cases that he's going to have to deal with. And so he says, he's, he's giving them instructions, and he says, in the case that is too hard for you, you shall bring to me, and I will hear it. So in other words, if you can't figure out this case, then bring it to me. There's this clear idea of, of comprehension. If you can't understand this, then you come to me. So the point here is not that Israel can do or obey this law, but that it's not beyond their comprehension. They can understand it if they study it and if they apply themselves to it. It is not in heaven. It is not too lofty for them The law was not too hard or too wonderful or too difficult to understand. It had been brought to them. God had condescended to them in the law. And so that's the first thing that these verses say about the law in relation to Israel. And the second thing that it says in verses 11 and then in verse 13, by way of illustration, is that the law is not too far away for you to do it. The law is not too far away for you to do it. In chapter 5, Israel is at Mount Sinai, and the Lord had come down to the top of the mountain and to give them the law, to speak with them face to face, it says, in the midst of the fire. And Israel was terrified. They thought that they were going to die. They said, we've heard from the Lord and we've survived. We're not going to be able to do this again. And so they looked at Moses. They said, why should we die? And they looked at Moses. And this is what they said. They said to him in verse 5 of chapter 5, they said, You go near and hear all that the Lord our God will say, and speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you. And we will hear it, and we will do it. The same phrase there that we see in verses 12 and 13, that we will hear it and we will do it. So it's like Moses is saying, Look, don't say this is too far for you. Don't say this is too beyond you. You sent me up there, and I went up there, and I got it, and I brought it down, and I have it for you, and I've just explained it to you again, and you have no excuse. Here it is. Now it's time to own up on your part. You said, I bring it, you would do it, here it is, and you do it. Chapter 29, verse 29 is also helpful. It gives us a similar idea. It says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of his law. So again, no excuse. You know what God requires, and so you worry about you. You obey. Certainly the same thing is true of us that the the word of God is not far away from you or me. Probably all of us have have, uh, multiple Bibles on our shelf, on our computer, on our phone. But are we diligent to read it? Are we diligent to study it and to memorize it so that we might not sin against God? There's There's no excuse for us. It's not far off. 
We've been given the very word of God, everything that we need for life and godliness. And so if you are not godly this morning, it's not because God has not given you what you need to be godly. He's given it to you. He's given it to us. It's because we've not availed ourselves of it, because we've not hidden it in our hearts. And furthermore, the word of God is not too hard for us to understand. We can't excuse our disobedience saying, the Bible's too hard, I don't understand that. Everything that we need to know can be understood from a clear and careful reading of the Bible. And here at Grace Church, we have an abundance of sound and faithful preaching and teaching. We need to take advantage of that. We need to thank God for that, that he's given us pastors and teachers and friends who can explain the word of God to us. But do we take advantage of these things? Do we go to the main service? Do we go to the evening service? Do you attend a home Bible study? Or have you considered attending a Logos class? Or have you gone and bought a book from the bookstore on something that you're having a hard time understanding or having a hard time applying? All these resources are at our fingertips. And we're not bound to do all of these things, but the idea is that there's no excuse for us to remain ignorant of God's word. And so we must be diligent to read and to study and to meditate on it. And we must be equally diligent to apply it. We certainly don't obey everything that we do understand. We should be confronted by the zeal of the psalmist, where the title of this series has come from. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Or again, have we cried out like this, teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Again, we're without excuse. So I'd encourage you to, to pick an area of your life, either an area where you're aware of that you don't understand, or an area where you're failing to apply what you do understand, and commit yourself to working at that by God's grace, by growing in knowledge, and by growing in obedience. Find out what the scriptures have to say and grow in holiness. So this morning we've seen that one source of hope for us is that the Lord is faithful to the faithless. And another source of hope for us is that the Lord is gracious to the helpless. And now we've seen that the Lord enlightens the ignorant. And seeing as we all, all of us tend to be faithless and helpless and ignorant, this is very good news for us. But there is one more thing that I would like to look at. Turn with me to Romans chapter 10, verses 3 through 10. And here the Apostle Paul relates our text directly to the gospel. Romans chapter 10, verses 3 through 10. It says, For the Jews, being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commands shall live by them. So anyone, any hope of righteousness based on the law depends on perfect obedience, and there's no hope in that. Verse 6, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend to heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Verse 7, or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The Lord is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. So in other words, Paul is saying, don't try to establish your own righteousness by the law. Only God can do that. And he has done that already in Christ. The word that is said to be very near 
in the heart and in the mouth, it's been identified as the word of faith, of faith in, in Christ who has come and he has fulfilled the law. He's obeyed its commands and he's taken and absorbed all of its curses. And Christ, having done all that, there's only one thing left for you to do. And that's in verse 9. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So if you are here this morning and you're not a Christian, then this is an opportunity right now for you to turn to Christ in repentance, to forsake your sin, to recognize it for the ugliness that it is, and to turn to Christ in all his beauty. See the slavery of sin that you experience as evidence of the fact that you need a new heart. And look to the one who can give you a new heart and confess him as Lord and be saved. And if you're here this morning and you do trust in Christ, but you find yourself being pulled into the mindset that your standing with him is somehow dependent upon what you've done, remember that it was never about anything that you've done. And praise God that it was never about anything that you've done. And instead, look to Christ and praise him Praise him that he has already accomplished it and that it is because of his righteousness and because of his death that we can be in right standing with God, that we can have fellowship with him, that we can be restored to him. It's so wonderful that we can be reminded of these things and how often we need to be reminded of these things because it's so easy to slip into the wrong mindset. I want to close by reading a hymn. It's a beautiful hymn. It's by Joseph Swain. It was written in 1792, and it's called Come to Jesus. And it fits perfectly with our text. It says, Come, you souls by sin afflicted, bowed with fruitless sorrow down, by the broken law convicted through the cross, behold the crown. Look to Jesus. Mercy flows through him alone. Take his easy yoke and wear it. Love will make obedience sweet. Christ will give you strength to bear it while his wisdom guides your feet safe to glory where his ransomed captives meet. Blessed are the eyes that see him. Blessed the ears that hear his voice. Blessed are the souls that trust him and in him alone rejoice. His commandments then become their happy choice. What a truth. Let's pray. Lord, please do this work in us this morning. Please, for those who have dead hearts, give them new hearts that they could trust and love you. And for us who, who you've made alive, please draw us back to yourself. Grant us repentance. Help us to change and to live a life that is honoring and pleasing to you. We thank you for your word and for its power. We pray that you would do this in us now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this message from our guest speaker. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Please note, law prohibits the unauthorized copying or distributing of this audio file. Requests for permission to copy or distribute are made in writing to the Grace Life Pulpit. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit, all rights reserved.